Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What do you think happens during communion? In my interview today, Dr. Stephen Nemish provides a biblical, historical, and theological defense of memorialism. That's the idea that the Eucharist memorializes what Christ has done and will do for us, rather than actually becoming Christ in some metaphysical sense. Thus, the bread and wine signify or represent Christ's body and blood without mystically becoming them. I think you'll appreciate not only Nemish's argument, but also his clear and logical approach. Here now is episode 506, Eating Christ's Flesh, Part 1, with Stephen Nemish. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Nemish. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So today we're talking about communion and your forthcoming book, Eating Christ's Flesh. Uh, <laughs> great title for a book, by the way. What got yeah. you interested in the topic? I'm glad that you liked the title. I wanted the title to be edgy. Uh, I think that'll you know sort of catch catch people's eyes. What got me into the topic of the Eucharist is that I was doing a lot of interacting with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox online. One of the common points of contention between Roman Catholics and Protestants is precisely the doctrine of the Eucharist, and especially the idea that there is a certain doctrine of the Eucharist that is basically a matter of consensus among all the the Catholic Church Fathers, from Irenaeus and Justin all the way to the Middle Ages. I was not so sure about this, so I you know, I decided to do some research. I thought to myself, you know, given my own predilections for phenomenology uh, and a more experience-based approach to philosophy rather than metaphysics, I was already more sympathetic to memorialism. I thought it made more sense just in the abstract. And so then I did some research on the interpretation of the biblical loki classici, as they're called, the classic places. And I also did some research on the early church fathers and their doctrines of the Eucharist. And I became convinced that, no, actually, that's not right. What you have in the New Testament and what you have in at least some of the very earliest sources, I think, is a kind of a memorialist doctrine. And so I don't agree that there is a sort of a consensus about real presence going back to the earliest days. I think rather that the earliest Eucharistic doctrine in the church is a kind of proto-memorialism, we can call it that. And this doctrine eventually gets, it enjoys a sort of a period of resurgence in the middle, towards the late Middle Ages and in the Reformation period with people like Cornelius Honius and Ulrich Zwingli. I was going to ask you, what year is Honius? Because you, you use him a lot. Yeah, so Honius, he is in the late 1400s and early 1500s. And he, so he's a sort of like just just pre-Reformation or extremely early Reformation figure. Um, he wrote a letter, it's called the Epistola, the, uh, this letter about the doctrine of the Eucharist. Uh, and this, I think, was published in 1525, if I'm not mistaken. It was immensely influential. Uh, Zwingli uses a lot of the arguments in his own writings. It you know, exercised a great influence on Zwingli. And what he argues there is basically for a memorialist conception of the Eucharist. Now, there, there's a book by this uh, Dutch scholar. I don't know his Jans Poit or something. I don't know how to pronounce his name. And he shows that Honius actually draws from a pre-existing tradition. So there, there were people arguing for this conception of the Eucharist even before Honius in the 14 and 1300s. They're mostly heretical, you know, quote-unquote sources, but there were these discussions taking place. Um, but in any case, what I argue, what I, the, the conclusion that I came to uh, after my research was that 
The earliest doctrine of the Eucharist is a sort of memorialism. I think the most philosophically defensible doctrine of the Eucharist is a sort of memorialism. And I think also that, you know, you can really give a compelling interpretation of the New Testament from a memorialist point of view also. So long story short, I got into this topic because I was talking to a lot of Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox online. And this is one of the typical points of contention that comes up. And then I decided there has to be a book where people, you know, like all the arguments can be laid out in one place and somebody can just make a case for memorialism. And there wasn't really a book like that. So I decided to write it myself. And uh, what platform were you on? Were you on Twitter or something else where you were having these conversations? A lot of these conversations were going on on YouTube and on Facebook. Okay. Okay. So you're a case study in online social media conversations producing something beneficial in the world <laughs> because yeah. so many so many times these just end in dumpster fires where we're all like oh my goodness nobody's convincing anyone for you it, it spurred you on to do this research were you surprised in what you found that the strength of the case for memorialism or or did you kind of already expect that would be the case in some cases i was certainly surprised so for example i was surprised at how strong a case can be made for a memorialist reading of Irenaeus given that people think Irenaeus is like unambiguously a proponent of the real presence. Now, this is a conclusion that I've come to after being in these conversations for a while. The vast majority of conversations talking about Roman Catholicism and Protestantism online are done by, you know, drive-by, you know, sort of quote mining of the church fathers, quotes pulled entirely out of context and with no sensitivity whatsoever to the the total corpus of that particular church father. So, Irenaeus has some one-liners that sound very uh, real presency, so to speak, if you just read them in the abstract. But when you consider, for example, as I do in my book at length, when you consider his actual theology of sacrifice and the way that he interprets the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it gives you an entirely different horizon for understanding what he says. When you consider, for example, also some of the arguments that he gives against the Valentines and others about their practice of the Eucharist, when you see that Really, his arguments against the Valentinians have more to do with the symbolic interpretation of the ritual in light of our theology, and not so much with like some metaphysical magic that's supposed to be happening during the ceremony. It gives you a whole different way of understanding what he says. Um, I'll give you an example. Okay, how can these people offer the Eucharist when they say that the material world is a product of some sort of primordial apostasy and ignorance? Because he says, if you say that, then when you are participating in the Eucharist and offering God the food items that we offer in the Eucharist and, say, and saying thank you to him for them, then you're doing two things. You're offering him something that doesn't belong to him. It belongs to somebody else because the ultimate God did not create the material world. And in the second place, you're offering him the fruits of apostasy and ignorance, right? So you're offering him things that are really not valuable at all. So notice the way that this argument functions. He's saying that if you take this theology, then the actual symbolism of, of the Eucharistic ritual becomes nonsense. It becomes farcical. You're offering God something that doesn't belong to him, uh, and you're offering him things that are not good because they're the products of ignorance and apostasy. This is not an argument about the metaphysics of the Eucharist. Right? He's, he's arguing that your theology doesn't match with this ritual. The, the evidence symbolic imagery of the ritual doesn't fit with what you're what you're saying. And so when later on he begins to talk about you know, the thanks are offered and the bread becomes the Eucharist of the body and blood of Christ and so on. It's clear that he's still operating in this symbolic frame. He's talking about the meaning that we give to these things, not what they are. He, he doesn't mean to say that the bread and the wine literally are Christ's body and blood, uh, but rather that this is the way we talk about them. This is the, the, the significance that we give to them. He also is very clear in his discussion just a few chapters earlier about the Mosaic sacrificial system that the Mosaic law is filled with images and types and so on 
by which the mind of the persons participating in the sacrificial system are supposed to be lifted up to God. So what you have in front of you are material things, but they're given this symbolic significance. They're images. They're supposed to make you reflect about eternal realities that are not, strictly speaking, right here. So for him, sacrifice is not a matter of like things being transformed magically or ontologically into what they are not. It's about using material things uh, in a symbolic way to reflect and contemplate eternal truths. And that's when he goes on in the very next you know, couple of chapters to say that the Eucharist is the sacrifice that's left in the church, that same idea has to carry over, right? That his general way of understanding sacrifice is the, the use of material means for spiritual contemplative purposes. And that's also what is happening in the Eucharist, right? He doesn't think that the, the bread and the wine are literally going to become Christ's body and blood. Rather, they, be, they symbolize that. They help us to contemplate Christ's body and blood by functioning as symbols. So once I understood reading Irenaeus in context and, and reading his treatment of sacrificial theology in general, you know, gives you a, a very strong basis for a memorialist reading of Irenaeus, I thought to myself, you know what, the vast majority of online discussions about this are strictly subpar. They're, they're very unacceptable. A lot of people are just quoting Irenaeus and these other guys and paying no attention whatsoever to like the possible nuances of interpretation that can be raised to the, the actual details of their theological system as a whole. It was a large part out of dissatisfaction with the state of the online discussion that I wrote the book. Yeah, I think the problem is so so often it's so much easier. Uh, forget about it now with the chat GPT era, but like even before, it's, it's so easy just to like find some janky website, some apologetics website with like half sentence quotations and say, there you go. What I've always believed is true is in fact true. And here's the evidence. Nobody wants to do the hard work that you just articulated of actually reading Irenaeus, much less doing it with an open mind to really enter into his world and, and be able to perceive things the way he's perceiving them rather than just using him like a lawyer to find you know evidence. But uh, let's let, before we get a little much further, let's talk about uh, the three main views of the Eucharist, memorialism, pneumatic, and real presence. Obviously, you could talk a long while about <laughs> each one of these three, but just give us a little explanation for those who maybe are not familiar with the different ways of thinking about it, the main three categories. Sure. What I argue in my book is that there are three general Eucharistic paradigms. There are a lot of sub-theories that can fit within these paradigms, but there are three broad paradigms. There's the memorialist, the pneumatic, and the real presence paradigm. And the way these paradigms can be understood in relation to each other is by how they would answer three questions. The first question is, is Jesus Christ really present during the celebration of the Eucharist? The second question is, are the bread and wine of the Eucharist really Jesus's body and blood? And the third question is, does the Eucharist affect or accomplish a further union between ourselves and Christ than that of mutual love? And depending on how you answer those questions, you will fall into one or the other of the paradigms. So the first question, is Jesus Christ really present during the Eucharist? The real presence paradigm says yes. The mimetic paradigm says yes. And interestingly enough, the memorialist paradigm says maybe, because you have memorialists who argue that Jesus Christ could be present or is present during the, the celebration of the Eucharist uh, because of his omnipresence in virtue of his divine nature. So that's the argument that Zwingli gives. Because Christ is God, He's also omnipresent, and that means that every time we celebrate the Eucharist, he's also present there. You can also have a non-Trinitarian or a non-Chalcedonian conception of the Eucharist, like you find in the Rakovian Catechism. Uh, so they would deny that Christ is omnipresent because he's, he's not God, and so therefore he's not present with us when we celebrate the Eucharist. So, But they're equally memorialists. 
So Zwingli is a memorialist who would say that Christ is really present. The Rakovian Catechism is a memorialist position that says that Christ is not really present during the celebration of the Eucharist. So memorialism is a maybe. You can say yes or you can say no. The second question, are the bread and wine of the Eucharistic meal really the body and blood of Jesus Christ? The real presence paradigm says yes. Uh, in fact, the real presence paradigm will say that that is how Christ is really present during the celebration of the Eucharist, the fact that the bread and the wine are converted or changed into his body and blood. Uh, the pneumatic and the memorialist paradigm say no. So the pneumatic and the memorialist paradigm have this much in common. They deny that the bread and the wine of the Eucharistic meal really are the body and blood of Christ. Rather, they're symbols. They image his body and blood. They represent it. But they are not themselves transformed into his body and blood. So the pneumatic paradigm will say that the bread and the wine are not Christ's body and blood, but Christ is really present during the celebration of the Eucharist. And when we take the bread and the wine, something happens between us and Christ. So the bread and the wine offer kind of an occasion for something to happen between us and Christ. The memorialist paradigm will say that the bread and wine are not Christ's body and blood. He could be at least present in virtue of his divine omnipresence, uh, but the bread and the wine are not changed into his body and blood. They remain bread and wine, and they simply symbolize him. The third question, does the Eucharist affect a further union between yeah between us and christ uh, other than that of mutual love the memorialist paradigm says no what the eucharist does is it confirms our love for christ in us uh, so what happens is we are reminded of christ's work on our behalf we partake of the meal uh, we take joy in his person and work on our behalf and what happens is that the bond between us and christ is strengthened on our part so we love christ more uh, we are more committed to him we sort of reappropriate him to ourselves and so on. But this is all strictly taking place at the level of the heart, right? It's just a matter of the mutual love between us and Christ growing and being cultivated. With the real presence and the pneumatic paradigms, they say that, no, some further thing is happening. So this stuff about our love for Christ growing, that is happening, but there's something else happening too, something metaphysical, something mystical. Somehow or other, we become united with Christ in such a way as to become one thing. And so Peter Martyr Vermigli, for example, will appeal to an analogy that he finds in Cyril of Jerusalem. Uh, he says, like, if you take two candles and you melt their wax and the wax mixes, and then it becomes one thing. He says, that's kind of what happens with us in the Eucharist. We uh, become united and we somehow become one thing with Christ, not merely because we love him and he loves us, but in some further way. So this is what the pneumatic and the real presence paradigm have in common. They say that the Eucharist affects a further union between us and Christ and that of mutual love. The memorialist paradigm says, no, what happens is simply our love for Christ is, is cultivated and, and strengthened. So that's how you would distinguish the paradigms. So if we were to talk about groups, uh, we'd say that the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans are real presence. The Calvinists are pneumatic. And a, a lot of evangelicals are memorialists today. Uh, is that how you would break it down? Or I think there are probably some some nuances that I would want to elaborate here like i i think that when we're talking about like extreme low church evangelicals and just like people who go to the you know the mega church on the corner in the neighborhood i don't think that they would count as memorialists if only for the reason that they don't have like a very robust eucharistic theology at all they have something they have like a bare ritual that barely makes any sense to them they, they know it's something that they do but they, they don't really take they don't really see it as a spiritual practice and a spiritual exercise which is what it is for memorialists like Zwingli. Uh, for a memorialist like Zwingli, the Eucharist is something that engages us. It's something that we have to do consciously. And it's not just a matter of like eating a piece of bread and thinking about Jesus. Like we, we see it as a certain symbolism that there's, there's this whole sort of ritual mindset that you have to enter into. 
but that's a nuance, right? So like broadly speaking, you can say that they have a kind of memorialist theology because they don't think that the bread and wine really are Christ's body and blood. Uh, they don't think that they are being mystically united to Christ. They think that their love for Christ is being fostered and cultivated. So they are memorialist, broadly speaking, but I don't think that they have a sophisticated memorialist theology like you'd find in Honius or Zwingli. Okay. So your book breaks into three main sections. You've got the biblical exegesis part, the church history part, and the theology part. Obviously, we don't have enough time to go through everything, but uh, you know, if we were to start and just briefly uh, take a look at the biblical part, you talk about John chapter 6, which is perhaps Jesus' most offensive discourse <laughs> in the Gospel of John, where he basically says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if, if I recall correctly, he even kind of uses a, a provocative uh, Greek word there, where it's like masticate you know, like really like chew me, not just uh, the normal word for for eat, uh, almost like really provoking everyone. And people point to this and they're like, well, it, the Eucharist must be his flesh and his blood it must actually be on, on the basis of this text. Uh, so maybe you could just explain a little bit how you're reading John chapter six. Sure. I have two elements in that chapter. So on the one hand, I offer an argument against the real presence reading. And then on the other hand, I offer a reinterpretation of the passage in a memorialist lens. Um, so with my anti-real presence argument, one thing that I, the way that I argue is that when you understand what the real presence paradigm is saying, and you appreciate all the philosophical qualifications that they have to make to their theory in order to keep it from becoming ridiculous, uh, then you quickly lose any sense in which Christ's flesh is actually being eaten. So I'll give you an example. Okay. We come to the communion table. There's bread and wine in front of us. It doesn't look like Christ's flesh and blood. Right? So how do I know that I'm eating Christ's flesh and blood? He says I'm supposed to eat it, but it doesn't look like it's here. Well, the response is made that the bread and the wine are converted into the substance of Christ's flesh and blood, uh, but in an invisible way. Okay, so now we've ruptured what appears to us and then what is really there. So there's a further dimension to the bread of the wine, to the bread of the wine beyond what we can see. There's some deeper dimension that's not visible to us at all, that's not perceptible. Uh, and that part is changed uh, or connected to Christ's body and blood or something. Something happens at that invisible level. And then we say, okay, but Christ is in heaven, right? And the Nicene Creed says that from there he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Um, he's not here yet, right? Peter says in Acts that heaven has to hold him until the time of universal restoration and so on. So what do you mean? He's coming down from heaven every time we celebrate the Eucharist? And they say, ah, no. Because Christ's presence in the Eucharist is not local. He's not here as in a place. In terms of Christ's place, he's with the Father in heaven. What happens is that this deep dimension of the bread and the wine that gets changed into or connected with Christ's body and blood, that thing also, that's a deep dimension that's beyond space and time. So it's, it's not only that it's not perceptible, it's not even here. It's not a part of the bread and the wine that's here. Uh, it's this part that is in no place and in no no spatial location whatsoever. That is what changes. Basically, what happens is you have to distinguish between all these elements of the bread and the wine. There's the perceptible part. There's the part that's located at a certain place and in, in, in space and at a certain time. And then there's this like deep element uh, that is beyond perception and beyond space uh, that is not in any place at all. Uh, and that part gets changed into Christ's body and blood. Okay, so. There are all these changes happening. We have an illocal, right, non-local presence of Christ's body. It's totally imperceptible. But then the question arises, how am I eating Christ's blood? Or how am I eating Christ's flesh, right? Because in order for me to eat something, I have to take it and put it into my mouth, 
right? Eating is a localized process. Whatever is not right here where the eating is happening is not being eaten. So for example, this is why there's that saying, you cannot you know, eat your cake and have it in your hand also, right? Because if you're eating it, then it's in your mouth and it's not in your hand. And if it's in your hand, then you're not eating it because it's not in your mouth. So what is happening is that Christ, the bread and the wine is being converted or chained or connected with Christ's body and blood in a dimension that is not perceptible and is not located at any point in space. So how is Christ's flesh being eaten then, right? All that you can say is that when I eat what is here, when what is here does go into my mouth, then that is providing an occasion for some sort of union to be affected between me and Christ. But that's not the same thing as eating Christ's flesh. What I'm eating is the bread, and what is happening between me and Christ is not a matter of eating, it's a matter of uniting, right? So on the other hand, what is being eaten is precisely not Christ's flesh, it's this thing that is here. Christ's flesh is not here, right? So really, if you think about the philosophical qualifications that you have to make to the real presence tradition in order to keep it from being just easily refutable by experience, you end up to the point where it doesn't make any sense to say that you're actually eating Christ's flesh because he's, his flesh is not here. It does not go into my mouth. It is not chewed. It is not. It doesn't go down into my stomach. It's not being eaten. Now you'll say, okay, well, the eating is not so literal as that. It's a different kind of eating. And I say, okay, I agree also that there's a different kind of eating, but why does it have to be what you say, right? Why do we need this elaborate metaphysical story about the conversion of the bread and the wine? Why can't we have a simpler answer to the question of how Christ's flesh is being eaten? And so this is what I do with my second part of the argument, right? I provide a different take on what it means to eat Christ's flesh. So now turning to the biblical text itself, uh, basically the memorialist position as I develop it in this book says that to eat Christ's flesh means to take joy in his person and work. It means to celebrate who he is and what he's done for us, right? So it's a kind of an, a figure of eating, right? Just like when I'm hungry, I eat food and it makes me feel good. So also when I'm spiritually hungry, I eat, quote unquote, Christ's person and work. I, I contemplate what he did for me and I think about it and I appropriate it to myself. And that fills me spiritually. It makes me full. So how do I think that that's what's happening in John 6? Well, Jesus's language in John 6 is not provocative from the very beginning, right? The beginning of the discussion is what happens is he feeds the, you know, there's the miraculous feeding. He multiplies the fishes and the loaves. Uh, those people see this miracle and they want to make him king. Uh, Jesus understands this, so he leaves. They go looking for him the next day. They find him in Capernaum, uh, and they say, where were you, teacher? We were looking for you. And Jesus says to them, you came looking for me because you ate your fill of the fish and the loaves. You ought to work for a food that does not perish, which my father will give you. Okay, so this is how he sets up the problem. They want food. He has something else to offer them, which is not physical food. Okay, so this is they're concerned about physical food. He wants to offer them something else, uh, eternal life. Sounds like a typical Johannine setup where you've got you know two ways of understanding something and the i don't know the antagonistic uh people and uh the sort of like dull-witted people are taking everything too literally and uh you know like as the reader we can see the difference and you know jesus a lot of times in these situations doesn't make it better <laughs> you know he makes right. it worse show it's like right. a reductio ad absurdum to expose the folly of their their view but uh, please go ahead. Right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. This is another kind of typical situation where he's talking about a spiritual reality, but everybody interprets him, you know, materially or physically. The same thing happens with the woman at the well. They want food. He is talking about bread that comes down from heaven, you know, that will that will keep them from ever going hungry again. They say, give us this bread. He says, well, I am the bread that came down from heaven uh, and whoever believes in me will never perish. Right. So already he's clarified what he means. He says he is the bread, he's the food that he has to offer. And in order to eat that food, you believe in him. 
So there the, the equation is set up, right? Already we, we, know, we know what he's trying to say. The thing that will really feel, feed your hunger is to believe in Christ, to see this man who was sent by God to die for the sins of the world who, and who accepted that mission gladly, that is what will feed your spiritual hunger. Nothing else will, right? So already he's, he's oriented the discussion to this point, to believing in him as a matter, as a way of appropriating the food that he is. But they don't understand him. They say, how can you have come down from heaven, you know? Or, or for, first, what they say actually is, right, Moses performed, uh, Moses gave our fathers in the desert manna. What work are you going to perform in, so that we might believe in you? Now, notice they, they are not only are they focused on the wrong things, they want material food. They're also arguing in bad faith because the text says that they saw the miracle happen. So it's not that the multiplication of the fish and the loaves happened without their knowing it. The text specifies that they saw the sign that Jesus performed. And then when they go looking for him and he says that you should believe in me, they say, well, what sign are you going to perform so that we can believe in you? So they're already arguing in bad faith. And Jesus recognizes this. He knows that they are not open to him. Uh, they are actually a hostile audience. Um, and so he presses the point. He says, no, actually, it was my father who gave the manna. Um, and he also gives you the bread from heaven so that whoever eat of it will not die. You know, give us this bread always, they say. I am the bread that comes down from heaven. You know, the bread is my flesh that I will give for the life of the world. Whoever believes in me will never die. And so they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then he says, he's, he, he, at this point, Jesus, I think, is frustrated because he's trying to point them to believe in him, but they just can't get it. Uh, not only do they not understand what he's saying, but they're actually positively hostile to him, right? And they're, they're being hostile to him and, and asking for him to perform another sign so that they might believe in him. So at this point, I think what Jesus does is he really like sort of like continues the point. He wants to be provocative. He wants to put them in a, po a position where either they give up on him altogether or else they stick around while having to admit that they don't understand what he means. And so he says, no, indeed, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And if you don't do this, you don't have life in you. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever eats you know, my flesh and drinks my blood has life. Whoever doesn't, does not have life. And so when people hear this, they're like, ah, who can accept this? This is a hard saying. And so the majority of them scatter. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you guys also going to leave? So notice this was his point. He wanted to put people in a position of making a choice, whether to stick with him and to try to understand him on his own terms or else not. And they say, well, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And then Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and truth. If Jesus said on the one hand that his flesh is true food, and then on the other hand, he says that his flesh is useless. I take it that he does not mean to contradict himself. Right. He, he is not saying one thing and then the opposite thing later. I take it that what he means to say is that the flesh is useless in the sense that those persons understood. Right. They understood him to be saying, you have to eat this meat. Right. That's on my bones. And he says, no, the flesh is useless. This will not help you. This meat is not going to help you. It's the spirit that gives life. What you need is the spirit of God to, to have life. And this is not come by eating meat. It doesn't come by what you put in your mouth. It comes from God. And so. I take it that when he says the flesh is useless, he's not contradicting his earlier statement about his flesh being true food. He's contradicting what they understood him to be saying. When Christ says that his flesh is true food, I think what he means is that the person who contemplates Christ's death on our behalf and his person and what he did for us and who he is for us, that person has life because that person then knows himself to be loved by God, uh, to be loved by God's son uh, and to be accepted. And this is eternal life. When you understand yourself to be God's son and to be loved by God, that is eternal life because now you feel at home in the world. You're reconciled with yourself. You're reconciled with reality. You don't have, you don't have anxieties. You don't worry about this and that you're, you're at peace. Right. And so that, that's state of inner peace of feeling reconciled with yourself and with God, that's eternal life that we can have right now. 
Um, and we can have that by knowing who Christ is and what he did for us. And so that's why I say that believing in, or eating Christ's flesh is taking joy in his person and work, because this is how he wants us to respond to him. He wants us to see what he, who he is and what he did for us and to take joy in that. And when we do that, we have eternal life. So that's the spiritual eating. It's a, it's an eating of the heart. It's an eating, um, you know, the, the food that we eat is the food of love. Just like being loved is something that fills us up and makes our life worth living and satisfies us. This is what we're eating in the case of the Eucharist. We're eating the love that Christ has for us that is shown through his, his death on our behalf. So this is how I would talk about these issues. Well, that brings this interview to a close for today. We'll get into part two next week as we get into more of the biblical and historical and philosophical issues related to the subject of communion. So stay tuned for that. If you'd like to leave feedback, questions, thoughts, come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 506, Eating Christ Flesh Part 1, and leave your feedback there. This is certainly an area worth consideration because it not only affects what you believe, but also what you do, especially if you're in a community of faith that practices communion. And as we'll see in our next interview, uh, Nemish actually is going to give us some really practical guidelines or advice at the end. So stay tuned for that. Well, I think I'll leave it there for today. Nice short episode for us. If you'd like to support Restitutio, uh, financially, you can do that at restitutio.org. Uh, if you'd like to support us by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on your podcast app, if it's different than those two, please go ahead and do that. It really does help people find the show and helps us get this message out about restoring authentic Christianity. You know, it's a bold motto. But it's really what we're trying to do here, and uh, you know, I really appreciate Nemish's approach because that's what he's trying to do. He's saying, forget about all of this tradition and all of these accretions and all of this metaphysics. Like, what does the Bible say? What do the early Christians believe? What makes sense logically? And let's recover and practice that rather than kowtowing to some sort of Aristotelian or Thomistic categories that no longer make any sense or uh, never really made sense if you really think about it or hold it and compare it against Scripture. So uh, that's really the project that we're into. Uh, if you're curious about restorationism and what a restorationist is, uh, come on over to restitutio.org on there, or you could search in your podcast feed, find the Restorationist Manifesto, and that really lays out the case of what it is we think we're doing, what kind of angle at Christianity we're taking as restorationists, I personally do love the label restorationist. I know some people don't like labels, but it's it's just so helpful because rather than identifying myself based on some current doctrinal conviction, some current belief system, which could change with time, I'm identifying myself by an approach to truth, an approach to Christianity, an approach that will remain true even if my beliefs change. So I recommend it to you to consider, and remember there are two halves of restorationism, at least in my opinion. Uh, the first half is recovering authentic Christianity. What, what in the world did they believe? What in the world did they practice? What, what is New Testament Christianity? What, what would the apostles say if you asked them these questions? That sort of thing. But then the second half is how do we live that out today in a world with UAPs and artificial intelligence and and electric cars, and a million other changes that have come about that the Bible does not talk about. So that's really also of great interest to me, and I hope it is to you as well, because what if you recover authentic Christianity? You understand the main beliefs and practices of the earliest church, and uh, you don't live it out. What good is that then? 
like James says, faith without works is dead. So anyhow, just a little pitch there for restorationism. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.